Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 48th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Bob Davis, general partner at Highland Capital Partners. As a founder and an investor, Bob has been there from the very beginning of the internet. He was the founder and CEO of Lycos, which was a dominant company back in the Web 1.0 era. For the past 17 years, he's been a venture capitalist at Highland Capital Partners. His track record as a VC really speaks for itself, having led investments at several successful companies that resulted in exits like Newtonomy, Bullhorn, Quattro Wireless, Turbine, and several others. In fact, just last week, one of his investments, Handy, announced its acquisition by Angie Home Services, the owners of Angie's List and Home Advisor. His current portfolio includes companies like Love Pop, Session M, Harry's, Freshly, and others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the full background story of Lycos from its early days to ultimately becoming the most visited internet destination in the world back in 1999, setting a record as the fastest company to ever go public in the history of the NASDAQ, how he evaluates investment opportunities and the specific criteria behind those decisions, the difference between products that are vitamins versus painkillers, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. We are closing in on interview number 50, which is absolutely crazy. Pretty soon, we are going to be the longest-running podcast in the Boston tech scene. I think Dave Gerhardt's Tech in Boston podcast got to 64 episodes, so we are closing in. If you are enjoying this podcast, please help us out by sharing it with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. There's so many great stories and pieces of advice from each episode that need to be shared. Thanks so much for your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Bob. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Real pleasure. I'm looking forward to today's discussion. So I always like to go way back. Uh, let's go down to the you know, foundation years of, of your background. So where did you grow up, Bob? Well, I am Boston through and through. And you listen to me for a few moments and you're going to hear Boston as thick as it gets. But I grew up in the heart of the city in a neighborhood called uh, Dorchester. And I spent all my time there. And I'm kind of one of these parochial guys that's grown up here and never left. So I have a, I have a life of planes, trains and automobiles. But as far as home, it's always been Beantown. And, and where'd you go to college? Northeastern. Uh, Northeastern University is a, a great school, and they've done an amazing job making my degree worth a lot more than it was when I went there. But uh, the, th- the great thing about Northeastern, it was a very uh, inner city s- school for kids that offered experiential learning. So uh, that's also known as co-op jobs, which means it's a five-year uh, undergraduate degree and you'd attend school for six months work for six months and do that for the five years and have a great opportunity for some really on the job hands-on learning you know it's funny is I, I actually started college as a criminal justice major thinking I wanted to be a lawyer and I attended Northeastern did a co-op job working for a lawyer in the state house in Boston and quickly said it's a great career, but it's not a career for me. And I wasn't interested in that. The co-op job was the impetus for me to switch out of criminal justice into business. And I jumped into a business program and the rest was history because it's at Northeastern where I always had also had my first intro to technology. So what was that? 
Well, it was two things. It was, uh, I worked for a business called the Foxborough Company, which uh, process control systems, still very much around, company of consequence, but but very old world systems as far as process flow, do, do and did a lot with chemical manufacturers and uh, oil refineries and really managing the, the flow of product and in, in goods through those refineries. Uh, I did that uh, for a co-op job. But the real one that kicked me over was I had a, a co-op job at uh, IBM. And I know it was a, a big, big decision for me because I was just been appointed. This, is, this sounds funny today, but I just been appointed to run what they call the Supreme Court at uh, Northeastern. It's a student judicial court. It was a nice thing. It felt like a nice resume builder for a kid in school, and it, it's re- responsible for student conduct and handing down decisions. And I had, to give up, I had to give up my chief justice role to take the IBM job. So I did it, and thankfully I did it. I did that for two different semesters where I was in a sales training role at IBM, and that was my intro to tech. It was really all about computers and technology, and and selling computers was really sexy and back in those days because not many people knew much about them. This was in 1979, I guess, when this was all taking place. And you'd say you're working for a computer company, and it was like, wow, computers, what's a computer? And I did that for a couple of semesters, and um, it was just so much fun. It introduced me to it. And, and then when I graduated from college, IBM offered me a job, but not the one I wanted. Uh, they said, it's a problem I wish I had today. They said I looked too young <laughs> and had a baby face. And they wanted me to be a systems engineer for a couple of years. Same training, really, for their systems engineers and, and salesmen, and uh, except for the last couple of months. It's a one-year-long training program. The last couple of months diverged. But they said be a systems engineer for a while until you look a little older. And I said, nay, nay, that's not interesting to me. You know, again, great job, but not what I wanted to do. And I turned it down and accepted a job at GE, nice, small, multi-hundred-thousand-person company, when they were in computers in the data communications products business department. There's a mouthful. And I went to work selling computer systems for GE. So what was the sales process back then? Just and then like the the revenue, like the what was the price tag associated with computing back then? It, it must have been very different. Uh, it was hugely different. Let me fast forward beyond GE because at GE we were selling to uh, large system resellers. So I was selling components for people that would resell it. So a lot of the mini computers of the day were my customers at GE, and I would sell in quantities of, of tens of thousands of units. Uh, that I would sell. So different. But uh, after GE, I went to Wang Laboratories, one of the mini computer companies, 30,000 employees, sold computer systems, really invented the word processor, and then did a lot with early stage computing. But I would sell a, a computer back then for a couple hundred thousand dollars, and the, which an iPhone could do a lot more than today. Uh, remarkable the systems we sold. I would sell uh, 90, not gigabytes, but I would sell 90 megabytes of disk storage, 90 megabytes of disk storage for $90,000. Wow. It was about about $1,000 a megabyte for storage. You you can't really, you can't buy anything that small anymore. Right. And and this was about the size of a small refrigerator. The, uh, the storage devices that you'd sell as part of a computer system. Basic word processor, uh, and then 
computers and word processors were totally different systems, but a word processor cost, could cost upwards of a million dollars just to be able to type letters. And Wang was like the dominant player back then, right? Like they were going toe-to-toe. Yeah. That's what yeah. Well, they, they were going really in word processing toe-to-toe with nobody. They were the only game in town. Okay. They, they had quite a, quite a monopoly on the business. Yeah. And that, but then came along, then came along the PC and Wang, like uh, many companies over the test of time, don't react quickly enough. PC came along, Wang was selling very high margin proprietary systems and said, we're not introducing our great software onto this PC, which is made by IBM. Um, and we'll go off and make our own PC and develop the PC that had its own operating system, and a lot of people caught up very quickly, and, and the rest is history. And then from there, you went to Cambex, which was in the storage industry? If Yep, yep, a VP of sales selling uh, storage for, uh, Cambex was a publicly traded company. Uh, I did that, so I was at Wang for 11 years, moved uh, away from Wang to Cambex, and was selling storage systems to uh, basically memory uh, systems for Unix as well as big IBM mainframes. Yeah. So um, and I uh, did that for a while and then uh, left there to go to Lycos. Okay, so let's talk about Lycos because I want to go deep here because Lycos oh. was kind of, you know, the big conglomerate of, you know, the web 1.0 era. So how did that even get on your radar? Like just what was the foundation? Like this, because this was going back to, was it 1995 or around that time frame? Well, the uh, start of the company in 95, but really the first days were 94 when we started to talk about the possibilities and how it might come together. Yeah. So the, the backdrop there, it, it, kind of the way, funny the way life runs in circles, but a, a very good friend of mine that I hired in his first job out of college, uh, venture capitalist Dan Nova, uh, had gone off to work at CMGI, which was the nation's first internet-only venture fund. He went there as a co-founder. And he had come across, uh, he, left, he had left Wang where I hired him and, and went off to Harvard Business School for his degree and was out now as a VC. Uh, and Dan and I were very, very good, fast friends. And we would speak regularly about just life. Um, he had come across the Lycos technology at Carnegie Mellon that was invented by a scientist that had no interest whatsoever of being part of the business, just did not want to be on the business side of things. And Dan said, well, I have this cool technology, I think. I mean, search didn't exist really as a concept other than in academia and on some, not too many other places did it exist. And uh, Dan said, but it's really no company. It's just some spaghetti code and not sure what to do with it. And then if we did anything, you have to find a CEO. And I said, how about me? And, uh, Dan and I spent a few months kind of talking about what might be, and I came on as the only employee to Lycos several months later after we finalized the sale of the technology from Carnegie Mellon and put a business around that. And this was when, like, consumers, like the scale of consumers on the internet was pretty minimal, right? It was Prodigy and was CompuServe, AOL, right? Just yeah, names that no one even recognizes anymore. Yeah, really nobody, the, the everyday person was not on the internet uh, back then. You, you, it was really a complex process to get online. There were online services that existed, which, as you mentioned, CompuServe and AOL and Prodigy and others that existed. 
but <laughs> excuse me, but but access to the internet was a firewalled community and all these gated communities of information and really the open web didn't exist in those days. So how did you think this technology coming out of Carnegie Mellon, like a, a search engine, like why would that need to exist and how would you build a business around it? Well, I looked and said, if, if the web is going to fulfill its promise, uh, as it, I believed it would, I mean, I was in, in tech, so I was very current and conversant with trends. And if the web or the internet, and we didn't call it the web, if the internet was going to fulfill its, its promise, we needed some way to navigate it. And by the way, there, the number of people online were single-digit millions. It was tiny in terms of the number of people that were actually accessing anything. Uh, our first index of the web with Lycos and the Spider was just a handful of million websites. I remember when we first indexed 10 million websites, and we celebrated that. We put that all over the news. There was big news back in the days that there were actually 10 million websites could be indexed. We put it out there. But anyway, I believe that the internet was going to be transformative, revolutionary, existential for many businesses, but it would really not be navigable without some way to get around. And the, the analogy I used back then, and uh, people get what search is today, so you don't have to say it, but then people really didn't understand. The analogy I used is, is picture the world's biggest library that exists. And you take all the books in the shelves and you shake up the building, they fall on the floor. And then you tear out the pages of every book and you're trying to find this, in this huge heap, you're trying to find one page within one book and there's no card catalog anymore. Well, you can't do it. But that's what the internet was. It was this mumble jumble mass of information with no way to find your way around it. We became that we became that card catalog or that index of the internet that allowed people to find their way around. The technology was fairly primitive in those days, but it allowed basic navigation. Search results weren't as strong as they are today. At least in '95, they weren't. But it allowed us to, to navigate, and it brought it brought order to what was the chaos of the internet. And with search, it's really, in my opinion, it was the first driver that allowed the masses to begin to come online because they had a way to find them, get around. So it was people like us and Yahoo and others that began to bring order to that chaos. And there was actually competition. You mentioned Yahoo and there was like what, InfoSeek and Excite? Even yeah, Excite wasn't even Excite. Excite was called Architext. Uh, it was the first brand they had. And there was a firm in Canada called OpenText. And there were a handful of others that were offering things. We, we were late to the game, believe it or not. And even in uh, 95, we weren't the first when 95 was when we finally wrapped up the, the purchase of the technology in June of 95. And as I said, I came on as the only employee of this business. So here I am with this software and I'm not a developer and no tech team and just me and the software trying to figure out what to do with it. But uh, yeah, there were others out there and we were, uh, playing a little bit of a catch-up, but still a lot of greenfield opportunity. And greenfield opportunity, right? So this is a industry that did not exist. You're creating an industry. Like, how did you build a team to, and like, how did you figure out like a business model, like generating revenue? Like, what was the, the formational years of building out Lycos? Oh boy, well, we had a lot of things to do. First, I needed a tech team to keep this product running because again, we bought it from the university, the founder. Founder, by the way, really great guy, brilliant at every level, great person, uh, but his life was research, and this is really what he wanted to do, and he did not want to leave 
Carnegie Mellon to join the business and Carnegie Mellon did not want him to leave. So that was the rules of the game, but what he, but he was quite helpful. And we found a couple of folks that were on his, that were students of his, um, I, I believe doctoral level students, but I'm not even sure of that students of his that left to join the company. So we had two or three uh, great developers that were going to leave to help us one on the operation side to make the machines run and one on the development side to continue to enhance the software. And we did that. And the guy that invented the technology uh, would work as an advisor to us um, as available. And he, he came on to help us do that. So um, it was uh, real early, but the business model uh, was at that point, a whole bunch of things that we were thinking about one for sure. We looked at, this has the opportunity to be ad supported and why, because from the beginning of time, any place you can aggregate a large audience consistently advertisers want to be. So I can deliver really large audiences and advertisers can speak to that large audience. It's an exciting opportunity for them. So advertising had appeal, but again, nobody had sold a single ad online. It hadn't happened. No one had sold an ad anywhere for any company uh, at that point. And then we also said, we have this great search. We can turn technology. We can think about licensing that to others. So maybe it's not consumer facing entirely. Maybe we license it to large corporations for intra company search. And we kicked around both of those ideas for business. And you, and you eventually built out this whole portfolio, like a media network that had all these different properties. And you went, you, you either like, did you like build a lot of these or you, you acquired a lot of them too, right? Like these different brands. Well, both, um, you know, you fast forward now a couple of years, um, we were doing okay as a company, um, you know, we're a public company, by the way, we had the fastest IPO in NASDAQ history. So we're a public company nine months after inception. So we found the company in, in June of 95 and we're public in April of 96. Crazy, crazy fast. Now, how did that happen? So I, I'm going to divert a little bit because I did want to talk about the IPO recognizing you were the fastest company to go public at that point in time is it still the same like is that still it is, yeah yeah wow. well okay. it, it, it would never that's a record that probably you know lasts forever <laughs> because today with Sabine's oxley and right. so many reasons and just the opposite many smart startups look for reasons not to be public early on and to grow and mature uh couldn't do it today no one you want to do it today we were on the job training at every level um as a public company. So it was, but it was very, very different. So uh, how did that go? Uh, how did that develop as we were being a lot of interest by investment banks and uh, one investment banker called us um, that we had known called us and said, your competitors are looking to be pub public companies. Uh, we like you better. Would you be, let us take you public and you have a couple of days to decide well, maybe not literally, maybe a week to decide what you want to do, because if not you, you're our choice, but if not you, we're going to help them out. And this was over the uh, Christmas holidays, and we had some whole bunch of board meetings and board calls. Is this realistic? Should we do this? Can we do this? Are we ready? Now, mind, we're only four or five months old at this point. Uh, in terms of a business, five months old as a business, and ultimately decided we would, and we did, and 
when I was a public company. And but there were so many unknowns. I mean, we were due to we were due to file uh, to have our first trade on April first of nineteen ninety six, and I put the kibosh on that because it, there's, there's so many unknowns. I said I'm not going to be the April Fool's joke, and that will be that will be the media story. That here we are, this nine month old company is out there. They'd be like, oh, and, remember that Lycos company, April Fool's joke. Yeah, yeah. And we, we pushed it back by a day, April 2nd, and did the offering only for that reason. This is how crazy it felt. We went out the April 2nd. It was a good good offering. Didn't I, I don't know what our market cap was after the first day. I don't know, $250 million, $300 million. Numbers that just sound, by today's standards, laughable is where it began in terms of how small it was, but, but, uh, and I don't remember again exactly what we raised, but 40 million or something like that, that we raised on that first IPO. Again, a lot of numbers that you just never consider today in public markets. So anyway, that was the, that was the IPO and where we jumped off. But then to your early question is the, what do we become? You fast forward a, a uh, year and a half or so, we were doing okay in the market, but but uh, Yahoo was running ahead with market share, and the other search engines that had been around longer than us had larger share in terms of us. Reach is the term that you all may know, percentage of the audience that we attract, and we were sitting with about thirteen percent audience reach. Reach, if you're not familiar with your listeners, is is, is not a uh, zero sum game in the sense that. I could have 50% reach and another firm could have 50% reach and another could have 50% reach. Uh, all it says is what percentage of the total audience do we achieve? So that would say with me at 13% reach, 13% of internet users use my site at some point during the course of the month. That's the way reach is defined. Um, but but not, uh, not big enough and Yahoo's running ahead. Yahoo's probably... 40%, 45% in terms of size. And we said, something has to change. How do we do it? And we did a, a, a really a defining offsite with the management team. I had a lot of really smart, really great people at Lycos. Uh, we could talk about those and where they came from because there were some unusual backgrounds and big risk takers that came on board to help us change the world at that point in time. But we had an offsite and said, there's no precedent model. There's no internet company to look at to say, what did they do and how do you do it? So we said, well, what are we? At that point, we had stopped licensing software. We were clearly a media company, made our, made our living by selling ads at that point, and said, how has media done it? And if you look at any media company of scale, the top media companies in the world, all of them, all of them operated across multiple brands, mm-hmm based on the premise that no one entity can capture everybody. So no matter how good uh, your product is, you don't get all of the audience. We as we have individual taste and we look at different things. So CBS at the time, uh, it was, there was no CBS Viacom spin out, but take an example of, of better yet Disney at the time, Disney owned Disney and Touchstone Pictures and Miramax and the Disney Channel, and all these different assets that they had. And, and CBS owned CBS and Viacom and MTV and VH1 and all sorts of magazines. And, and they divided the audience so they could get more people. And the, the people may have touched their product many times across many brands. Well, we said we can do the same thing online, darn it. How, how, let's, let's, get, let's use our core product, Lycos, which people knew, the brand, and let's use that to build audience around these insulated brands. So we went around, we went about building and acquiring. We acquired 
uh, probably 30 odd companies over a period of time and some big brands at the time. We acquired Wired, still around today. We, we know Wired Magazine and Wired Digital. We own that. And we own uh, some of the early, I mean, I, I hesitate to call them the predecessor to things like Facebook, but there were personal homepage sites where you talked about yourself and we acquired uh, Tripod and Angel Fire. And sites called Who Wear and Quote.com, which are early financial sites, and a whole bunch of others. And we built a network. And month after month, our audience grew and grew and grew. And one day we woke up in 1999 as the most visited online destination site in the world. We were bigger than Yahoo and everyone that existed out there. We were the, the big one. <laughs> Excuse me. But even as the large one at that point, we had maybe, I don't know the exact numbers, but 150, 200 million users uh, globally uh, because the numbers were still maturing on the web. And, and if you do look at the brands you had under the portfolio, under Lycos, it is you know the precursor for standalone multi-billion dollar businesses, right? So like Tripod, you know, Squarespace and Matchmaker was an online dating site that, you know, there's so many different dating sites now and yeah matchmaker was a great one yeah they were all great businesses yeah extraordinary what was built and at the time you know just uh very forward thinking to uh to whole you know spawn a whole industry it's just amazing and it was different it was different as well we, we had a we had a really a nice advantage in the sense that we we're, we're a publicly traded company and the public markets then rewarded uh, growth uh, in a in a really a wonderful way. So as we would acquire, we would dilute ourselves. We'd, we'd use all equity in the businesses that acquire, but invariably, uh, almost after most of our acquisitions, the news of that and the market share increase would drive market value. Uh, the price of the stock would drive up sufficiently that we're creating value. So even though we're diluting the company in terms of number of shares, the individual shareholder is saying wealth creation because the total value is being driven up with each acquisition. So you're, you're, it's a little different than what you might see traditionally where number of shares might have a dilutive impact on company value. That wasn't the case. It was just the opposite. And then fast forward, I guess, a little bit further where, you know, Lycos was um, acquired, right? But th yeah. there was a precursor to that, right? There was a, a, a deal that was potentially going through, but it, ended up falling through for whatever reason with well we backed uh, out of it yeah we had um iac attempted to buy us iac wasn't called iac at the time it was called usa networks and barry diller um man with great foresight then and now he can look into the future and see things that others can't so build some great businesses he um approached us about an acquisition we agreed to that um and it was a very different acquisition uh we were acquiring Lycos was the surviving entity in that acquisition. And we were acquiring a number of businesses from USA networks, which included uh, Ticketmaster that they own in its entirety, the home shopping network. So all of those TV assets we wow. were going to acquire at Lycos and run and build and build a commerce destination using our traffic. So a little bit of what Amazon was doing, we were going to do, mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of other assets that he had we were building into the business. But we were the surviving entity. So, But we were acquiring so much from him that he had a controlling interest in the new company. So it was almost a, it's not really quite a reverse merger, but, but it was a 
complicated transaction. And the market didn't really know how to value it. And we were taking all of these offline assets, Ticketmaster, Home Shopping Network. We were owning a TV network. Uh, we were selling tickets. We are taking these offline assets and putting them in a Lyco. So, so the marketplace became confused as to how they would value this, this big high growth engine of internet only. And we probably didn't do a good enough job telling them. And they, but for sure, we didn't do a good enough job telling them because <laughs> if we had, they would have understood. So uh, the stock suffered a little bit when we announced that. Bounced back. But uh, then we had some uh, shareholder opposition from some uh, large internal shareholders, and we ended up backing out of the transaction and not going forward with it. And then one year later, that's when the acquisition by Terra Networks happened? Yeah, it was really approached by Telefonica. Terra Networks was the operating subsidiary of uh, Telefonica, but it was essentially 100% owned, some public float, but really 100% owned and controlled by Telefonica. And Telefonica was the the uh, telco, so it was the AT&T of the Verizon, of the Sprint for the uh, Spanish-speaking world, dominant market share in Spain and then throughout uh, Latin America. And they wanted to uh, acquire us, which they did. And we wrapped that transaction up, which it the time we initially put it together was a we announced the deal to the street. It was a twelve and a half billion dollar acquisition. You know that was the time when twelve and a half billion sounded like a lot of money. <laughs> there was a day when that was a big deal. <laughs> right now you look and say it's only twelve and a half billion. That's crazy. It is crazy with the valuations and exits these days. Yeah, sell a company for a hundred million. People are like, oh, okay. Well, that's a nice try. Yeah, it's true. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously that's when things started to change with the, you know, the markets and the internet and the bubble bursting, right? Yeah. Well, that was one of the reasons we sold. Um, now with the benefit of hindsight, who knows at this yeah. point, we're still bigger than Google. Google is still coming on the scenes when this happens. This is now in late 2000 when this transaction is coming together, uh, uh, where, substantially bigger than Google at this point in time. Uh, we had a lot of patents that we felt that Google may have infringed on. They may not have, but we don't know. But uh, we had sent a letter to Google about uh, patents at that point in time, and, and uh, we're having some dialogue back and forth. But, again, who knows? But, uh, uh, maybe we would have, if we kept on running, it would have been a, a bigger business. And years later, we surely would have undergone some hell through the nuclear winter that lasted a lot of years. What I did feel, though, is the companies at that time were excessively valued, including ourselves. And for our shareholders, an exit made some good sense. Mm -hmm. That was the motivation to the transaction to say really great, graceful exit to all of our shareholders. Um, and, you know, that worked out well for a lot of us. And then I guess to, you know, fast forward to what you're doing now, and it's been, how many years have you been a venture capitalist? It's oh, boy, longer than I want to think about. Yeah, I've been with, uh, let's see, 17 years. So, and how'd you get into investing? Well, it wasn't the plan. Um, after Lycos, my plan was always to start another business. And, um, I mentioned my friend and my good friend and colleague that I had worked together in the capital for Lycos and then hired at Wang Laboratories. Well, um, when I was uh, thinking of leaving now Terra Lycos, 
where post acquisition, I was the uh, vice chairman of that board. And I was the CEO now, remember, of Lyco, Terra Lycos as well. And I'm thinking of leaving. We're a publicly traded company. And this is a publicly traded company. There are very few people you can talk to. It's just, you just can't share information. Right. So I had a really tiny circle of people I, did, I would speak to about it. Uh, Dan was one of them. He said, well, if you decide to leave, why don't you come to Highland for a few months while you figure out your next stop? And so that sounds interesting. Fast forward a little more. I decided to leave Terralicos for a whole bunch of reasons that we didn't get into, but we can. But I decided to leave Terralicos. I joined Highland with the understanding that I would sit and think about new ideas. But the more I sat here, the more I saw a great group of people and the more I liked this work and said, I can be really centric to company building, but doesn't have to be my own. I can be really mentoring, advising, helping others build companies. And I loved that idea. I watched my partners here do that work and said, this is something I want to do longer term and decided to join Highland to do it for the long haul. And I mean, now you look at your career and the number of companies that you funded and the impact you've had as a greater whole with a portfolio versus, you know, who knows, you could have built another great Lycos success story. But um, the, the number of entrepreneurs that you've been able to back that have gone on to build successful companies that have you know, been acquired or whatever the case may have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always the exciting part of this business. And that's what gets you out of bed every day is the idea to build something new and build something transformative. The companies that look to change the world are, I just, there's just no high level of excitement. And the businesses that we have in the portfolio, so many of them, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're on the enterprise. On the consumer side, so many are looking to, to change these monopolistic, duopolistic businesses, to change asset utilization the way we know it, to reach consumers in different and exciting ways. On the software side, uh, just, again, reinventing the world. So how did you learn to – I guess this goes back to your background with Lycos and being able to see the future, too, of this is going to be something that's going to be massive and at scale – because I look at some of your investments, and one of them in particular, Newtonomy, when you made that investment, it wasn't like autonomous driving was all over the media, right? This was early days of autonomous driving. So you know, how did you connect with those founders and believe that this is something that's actually going to happen? And it still you know, has years to actually be main, you know, mainstream, but you know, it's all over the media now. Yeah, there was really not many people at all talking about it. Um, GM had just acquired Cruise, and that was about the extent of it, but there was very little going on. We uh, came across some really smart, really smart individuals out of MIT. One was a full-time researcher at a senior level, and the other was a professor that had spent a lifetime in and around robotics, and they were working on autonomous software. Um, we, a group of us, had some conversation with them and instantly fell in love, not only with their, their vision, but with them as leaders and as individuals. And that led to an investment in an A round of financing. They had raised a small amount of capital from a handful of others. One was from uh, Bill Ford, the chairman of Ford Motor Company's investment vehicle, and a handful of others. They raised some money from a, a very prominent Greek 
shipping family that had spent a lot of time around transportation, although not in cars, but really understood the marketplace and some others. So we went to the A and uh, saw it and felt that felt that this was had a mission that was no less than transforming human transportation as we know it. And that that's a once in a lifetime mission to say that the last time that happened was in the early 1900s when we went from horse and buggy to automobiles. And since then, there's really hasn't been a transformation that we're talking about here. And this has that potential to, to do that. And that's what we looked at it. And we had entrepreneurs that shared that dream that we felt had the product that could compete and jumped in great guns with them in the business. And, and how do you evaluate investment opportunities? Because when I look at the portfolio of investments that you've made, and certainly, uh, you know, still are an investor, and there's a consumer element to most of them, but there's lots of different, right? There's, uh, you know, Handy, that's a marketplace for, you know, getting your apartment clean. There's Harry's that's, you know, it's a consumer brand for razors, Love Pop with greeting cards, Session M. So there's just so many different companies in different areas. Like, how do you make decisions based on investments? Yeah, well, I, I, we, I do, and all of us at Highland tend to focus very deeply around sectors where we spend our time uh, around that. So most of what I do today is around uh, autonomy, disruptive commerce, and some select software. But um, outside of that, it would be one of my partners. So for instance, we have a big uh, and successful cybersecurity practice at Highland, but it's not an investment that I would make. Uh, I'd be excited always to hear from that from that entrepreneur. But my partner on the West Coast and one of my partners here in Cambridge, Mass, would be the individuals that would be uh, leading those yields. Uh, but how do we decide? Um, there's really four basic components for any investment that sum up the, the thesis, and it's this order that I'd look at something. It's, it's people, market, product, and deal in that order. And when I think about people, what is it that's prepared you for this moment in time for this business? Why are you ready? How are you going to do it differently than others? What you drive? Um, what you, what's your skill set? And how does it apply to putting this business together? That's a very subjective call. Um, that plays into that. And then relationship is also important. Uh, we're very active investors. We're proud of that. We're excited about that. We, we take a board seat in virtually every company we invest in. Um, and it's a long journey together. So in addition to saying you're a great person and, and I'm an okay person, I want to make sure that we have chemistry and culture that can bond because we'll be in the trenches for a long time. So it's a lot of understanding each other that we're just peas in a pod that can work together. So that's part of the process. So we satisfy people. Um, next is uh, market. Is it a, a large market and is it a growing market? Both characteristics that are important to us. It's great to say you can have 90% market share, but if it's 90% of a $50 million market, guess what? It's always a small business versus 10% market share of a $70 billion market. And guess what? That's a big business. Mm -hmm. So what's, what are the market characteristics? And then, and then all of that meaning 
it's just at the top level market size and total address total addressable market but how do you acquire customers and how do you reach out to them and what's your lifetime value of customers and what's the competition and all the things that go into market second criteria third is product what's the mouse trap that you build so how are you addressing this great people big market that's growing how are you addressing it and we describe it as and other firms do as well um there's there's two things in the market that we think about on investments there's vitamins and there's painkillers so a vitamin is something you take a lot of times and you're not really sure in theory you know why you're taking but you take it and nothing feels any different when you wake up the next day and you took the vitamin maybe you're healthy i don't know maybe aren't and but everything kind of the same painkiller if i have a headache and i take an aspirin there's relief I, I, I was really fairly quickly because I took that aspirin and it, it solves a problem. So we look for painkillers. So something that solve real pain points in the marketplace. And we look for entrepreneurs to help us with that because sometimes those pain points aren't even identified yet. I mean, the market doesn't know. I mean, when, when Steve Jobs invented the iPhone, where was the pain point for that? People didn't know. So you need great entrepreneurs that have a vision that can help you understand that. But real painkillers. And then lastly, it's deal, which means if everything comes together, it's an exciting opportunity. Can we work out the right investment and the right ownership for a company but that makes us want to move forward? But but just about all the time, if we're excited about a company and the entrepreneur is excited about us, we can work out the deal. It's rare that that would be a reason that an investment doesn't get done. It's very rare. Yeah. I love the, the painkiller analogy. So uh, you had lots and lots of great successes, exits, um, but I always like to ask, you know, kind of like the anti-portfolio that Bessemer does on their website. So are there any misses that, you know, companies that you passed on that you're like, oh, I had the opportunity, but I missed? Yeah, there are some. There, there are always those. I mean, there's more than you want. Um, but but and here's why we all have them. For starter, we as a firm look at over a thousand, meet with over a thousand companies a year. Mm-hmm. So to make, I don't know, to make 10 investments a year, sometimes more, sometimes less, but to make a relatively smaller number of investors. So sadly, we say no for a living. Mm-hmm. And we only do a handful. And we're early stage investors. We're Series A investors. And we're so much of what we're doing is vision that hasn't been realized yet. So, so I'm not giving you an answer to your question yet, but I will. But we see, we don't see every deal, but we see a lot. Uh, and we see most investments that are made in the market at one point in a cycle. So you go look at most anything and say at one point it passed through our hallways and say, we're those some more seriously than others. We looked at, I would say a, a transaction that, uh, I looked at that I kick myself still for all the time would be kayak business here in Boston. Great founder. I knew the founder had history with him. Mm-hmm. I mentioned people. He passed the people test wonderfully. Uh, we, um, um, chemistry was exceptional between them, big market search. I, I'm a believer in search and he was essentially setting up search for travel. So, uh, great product, uh, met the criteria for, um, some bunch of reasons that we didn't do it, but should have. And if I look back on that, it's, that's, that would be, that would be to me, uh, on the list of anti-portfolio, plenty others, but, but yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll avoid the shame and I won't tell you who the others are. <laughs> Okay. How's the Boston tech scene these days? I mean, it's kind of 
you know, had the stigma of, oh, I can't build consumer businesses in Boston. But I, I always, you know, argue the point that, no, there's lots of great success stories in consumer in Boston. But, you know, what's, you know, through your lens, how's the, the Boston tech scene these days and in, in terms of its evolution? Oh, it's exceptional. I mean, it's a, it's a golden age of entrepreneurship here in Boston. Uh, it's as good as it's been in 30 years. Uh, I think it's ancient history and old news to suggest that Boston's a tough place to build a business. Well, it's tough to build a successful business anywhere. It's tough to build it in Palo Alto. It's tough to build it in New York. It's tough to build it in Boston. Mm-hmm. It's hard to build a great business. We invest for Stoddard everywhere. We invest in Silicon Valley. We invest in New York. We invest in Boston. So we're not partial. We're partial to people market product. Having said that, uh, Boston's fantastic. And you look at the consumer businesses, we have I mean, there's so, so many big ones. I mean, you just think about who's here. We, uh, Kayak, we talked about Wayfair uh, that exists. I don't know what the market cap of that is, $10 billion plus Wayfair, Congress, TripAdvisor, a long list of of big, big, successful, exited, publicly traded tech companies that started in Boston that rival probably, as far as exits and real big businesses with multi-billion dollar valuations, it probably rivals any area in the nation other than Silicon Valley as far as real exits uh, that we've had in Boston. And pill pack and uh, simply safe. I mean, there's just I yeah. go on and well, on, and listen, on. I was just yes, you're right. Those are all big, but I was referring not just to the the exits. I'm referring only to the companies that had have multi billion dollar market caps. Right. Yeah. The, the publicly public traded, traded companies. Yeah. Yeah. The exits are even more abundant as far as consumer companies. Yeah. Yep. Very true. Now you're also very involved, you know, from a charitable level. So, like, what's um, where are you spending your time these days on, with charity work? Well, a, a few places. I, uh, um, we spend a time. I'm on the chairman's council at Boston Children's Hospital, and I'm very active in a homeless shelter and have been for uh, 20 years here in Boston called Bridge Over Troubled Waters, where our, our entire family is actually very active there. My wife is a trustee. I manage a number of fundraising events. My kids have been very involved uh, with that. And then up until just recently, although I can't say it anymore, I guess, because I just retired as a chairman of the board of a, a high school that I've been on the board for 14 years called the River School, which is just um, west of Boston in a town called Weston. It's a really wonderful place of learning. Great. Well, Bob, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Real pleasure. Good, good to talk to you. See you again soon, I hope. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.